Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Welcome to What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We discuss our top three tips for each episode's topic. And today we have a wonderful guest with us. First, I'd like to introduce the podcasters here. So I'm Janice Palaganis, and I'm here with... Peter Kahn. Our episode is on predictive analytics. So I'd like to introduce our uh, wonderful faculty who has accepted our invitation for us to talk with him today. We have Anshul Kumar here with us, who is an assistant professor for health professions education program here at the Institute. And he teaches quantitative methodology, uh, both traditional statistics and predictive analytics. And if there's any statistician that I know that can explain it in a way where I can understand it in less than five minutes. It has been you, Anshul. So I'm so excited to have you here with us. Thanks, Janice. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be on the podcast. Can I ask you, just reminding me, when I started as a faculty member 20 years ago, uh, part of my cohort, there was a new faculty member in film studies and a new faculty member in mathematics. And we're all talking about our early teaching experiences and the film studies professor said, my subject is the worst because every student thinks they're an expert because they watch movies and they think they know what it is. And then the math professor said, no, my subject's the worst because everyone hates it. And they come <laughs> to me with this lawyer. So I wonder when students hear, oh, he's the stats guy or the quantitative methods guy. Do you get a lot of that resistance? I'm assuming you don't get a lot of, oh, I love stats. I know all about it. So how do you start building rapport with students who are already predisposed to think you're the tough guy? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, had, I haven't thought about that. I mean, generally, our students are pretty motivated. They do get hit pretty hard, I guess, in my course by some hardcore coding. And we don't do too much math, actually, which is the ironic, maybe little known fact about a lot of statistics that as long as you have some data you need to analyze, the computer can do a lot of the work for you and you just need to know how to responsibly use the results that it gives you and get it to tell you what you want. So we actually, in some senses, spend more time coding than even doing math. So that can be the real headache for people, but we try to work through it carefully and slowly. And I try to take feedback from everybody to make it as painless as possible, but it still can be painful sometimes. Also, to uh, get back to what Janice was saying earlier, predictive analytics is a very appropriate application, I'd say, for the current crisis that we're in. I haven't seen too many applications of it used yet, but I'm sure that people are, are doing it. And maybe it is a good idea to use in the schools as well. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> Wow, I'm thinking I'm thinking it's probably difficult to do during these times. But before we go into that, Anshul, would you mind giving our listeners just kind of a rundown of what is predictive analytics? Because I think some people don't know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So 
It's a little bit hard to explain very rapidly without any visualizations. I usually do use visualizations. So if you can kind of imagine, say, the kind of filter that you would pour or a colander that you would pour, say, spaghetti into after you make it. The idea in predictive analytics is to pour data or data you have about certain people, for example, or certain doctors or patients or whatever you may want to look at, pour that into a spaghetti filter in the computer and then have that sort out your data for you to try to make a prediction about a particular outcome that you care about. The same way that you care about separating spaghetti from water when you when you finish you're cooking and you pour everything into that filter. That's maybe one way to describe it, but I can give a more concrete example if you'd also prefer that. Well, I think it would help me because the, the pasta model evokes a very clear picture. But then I think of transferring that to the computer. Is this, I mean, what am I looking at? Is it a web-based tool? I know it's not punch cards, but it's probably, is it a special application you use? So what is it that you actually see that becomes that filter? That's a really great question. It's really just a spreadsheet in Excel. I think that's what you should visualize. And so imagine that you have a bunch of information about somebody. So let's say I'm the teacher of a medical school class and I've given my students some tests and I've given them some quizzes and they've done some practical experiences on which they've been assessed. And so I have my grade book. And in my grade book, which is an Excel spreadsheet, I have one row for each student and I have one column for each of the things I just mentioned where I'm keeping track of everything they've done. So the idea is, can I use my grade book from last year's course, last time I taught it, can I, where I do know everyone's final grades, can I use my gradebook from last year's course to predict the final grades of my students this year before they've actually finished taking the class so that I can know ahead of time who's going to do well, who's not going to do well, who's going to need extra support ahead of time. So that's one example of the types of questions that predictive analytics can be used to solve in health professions education. So you're basically taking that Excel spreadsheet and dumping it into the spaghetti filter, but you you calibrated the spaghetti filter using last year's grade sheet. And then presumably in that example, Anshul, you'll know pretty quickly whether your predictions were correct. So can you then go back and adjust the filter to make it more accurate? Yeah, you can. So as you keep getting more information, so when this year's class finishes and I know my true final grades for my students this year, I can go back and look, well, did the filter, did the predictive model make good predictions or bad predictions? And then based on knowing that for the next year, when I'm trying this again, I can as you said, calibrate and fix and fine tune the model so that it gives me better predictions. So I know you've been doing this kind of work with the PA program, and I don't really know the details of it. I would love to understand what you're doing with the PA program, Anshul. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's an exciting project going on right now. And so at our, at our institute, we have a physician assistant program, which uses a team-based learning model. So part of the team-based learning approach, which I really like, not just because it allows me to do better analytics, but also I think it makes for good teaching and learning, is that the students do small assessments on a very regular basis. So there's metrics that are collected on the students, such as IRAT, I-R-A-T, Individual readiness assessment tests, which are essentially little quizzes that students do at the start 
of every time they come to class. And so whereas in the traditional course, maybe we would have one data point for each student every two weeks, maybe. Now we have one for almost every day that a student is in the classroom, or maybe not so granular, but close to that. And so what we can do is we can take all of these metrics and plug them into a predictive model, a machine learning model. And that can hopefully, we're in the process of doing it, but that can hopefully help us make better predictions about the outcomes for this student. And the challenge we're trying to tackle in this particular collaboration with our um, physician, physician assistant program is basically what I described with the grade sheet as well. We have a history of student performance from the past, and students take a national certification exam at the end of being in the program after graduating. And we want to try to do everything we can and leverage all the data we have to identify students who may need a little extra help in passing that exam beforehand. I I just wanted to touch on something you said in passing, machine learning. So is that a synonym for predictive analytics or is it a component or what's the relationship between those terms? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I should have said something about it before. So you can think of machine learning as a subset of artificial intelligence. And I'm by no means an expert on the majority of it, but machine learning is basically taking, as we said, some data, looking for patterns in it, and then making predictions or in some other way, learning about the patterns in your data, leveraging certain computer algorithms. And then predictive analytics, uh, I would think of as maybe a subset of machine learning, which actually allows you to predict some outcome that you care about. So Anshul, as you know, I'm personally physically torn or philosophically, sorry, philosophically torn about predictive analytics and that I'm so excited because I think it's it's innovative, it's new, it's something, it's leveraging technology to do things that can improve programs. Yet I'm pretty scared about predictive analytics because I think it opens up a whole can of worms, you know, like, will there be an IRB group looking specifically at predictive analytics, which studies will get approved, which do not. And I think particularly where I'm scared for where the, and by the, by the way, like the whole world is going into predictive analytics, everyone's going to be doing it. Do you trust our world enough in all of its implicit bias to always do the right thing? And, and it, kind of reminds me of, you know, the controversy of genetic testing for insurance agencies, only this is at the level of, in our case, education. Like by predicting that someone needs help, are we now creating a lower standards for that person where they're not going to succeed because we've labeled them as such? And so so what's your take on that? First, I guess that's my first question. Second is, you know, how do you see us protecting organizations in their use of predictive analytics around these issues? Yeah, I think when it comes to the issue of ethics and bias or discrimination, or as you said, I think you had said the example of genetic testing. Let me let me give two examples uh, as quickly as I can. So, and these are both real examples to the extent that I'm aware. But imagine a uh, university administrator who has decided to use some type of predictive analytics on the data that they have about their students in the past. And they have found a way to identify students who are less likely to graduate. And then they can identify those students at the time when they're applying. And so before even admitting the students based on their merit, they also run the students through this algorithm. And they're able to say, 
look, we're only going to admit students who are most likely to graduate so that we can boost our graduation numbers. So basically what they did there is they discriminated against people who were probably already already marginalized in some way. And they said, well, we're not going to admit these people. So that's very exclusionary. And I think we could all agree is ethically wrong. Then at the same time, another example of something you can do with predictive analytics is you can, again, look at all your data. Let's say, for instance, we can, again, talk about admissions data. So let's say you, again, look and you find, oh, we've actually been admitting people with a particular bias that we didn't know about before, before we actually did these analytics. Well, now the analytics will allow us to identify that bias and correct against it. So I think that doing these types of analytics to get to answering your question now, are these type of analytics are very important for us to do, but then how we actually deploy them in practice is critical. It's yeah. critical that we're transparent about that process. It's critical that that process is governed, especially if the stakes are really high. But it can really do a lot of good as well, because it actually makes it very easy if you have the right type of data and analytic processes, you can very easily identify these kinds of bias and you can actively work against them if that's something you want to do. I think of mm-hmm. bias even at the level of the individual faculty member. It's almost that concept of pre-crime from Philip K. Dick, the science fiction writer, that you in the future will have these models and we'll know all the bad stuff that's going to happen before it does and then we'll arrest you. And are we predetermining these learners to negative outcomes without giving them a chance? And how uh, fatalistic are these models? Or or do we have the ability to go against the the tide of the data and be surprising? Yeah, that that's a great point. Um, yeah, it reminds me of a lot of Gattaca or Minority Report. You're you're absolutely right. So I think there are two things to keep in mind. One is that when we do identify any of these issues or we do make a set of predictions, we have to understand what those predictions are telling us and then use them in a way that's constructive. So for for every single prediction you make, you also have the opportunity to change that outcome as well. I think in most cases, especially for us in health professions education, where in the example that I typically use, right, with the grade book and everything and trying to provide extra support for a student who's predicted to fail, we actually have the capability to intervene. And so I think taking that opportunity to intervene and changing the outcome is something that the analytics can really help us do. Well, I'm curious, can you drill down a bit more on admissions? That's something that crosses all higher education and health professions education. And often I've heard it used as an autopsy. Someone failed out of the program or a certain number of people failed. And you want to go back and look to see where there are warning signs early on. So is that an example of where predictive analytics can be helpful? Because then we could intervene to support those folks sooner in the process. Yeah. In my opinion, the answer is absolutely yes. It can be very useful And we are already collecting all of this data in many cases. Also, if you're part of a large institution or you're part of a small institution that has been operating for many years, 
then you also are generating a lot of data that you may not be taking advantage of. Even at the admissions level, there's so much information we have on somebody who is applying to a program. And we can absolutely use that information to determine if someone is more or less likely to succeed or if we have a biased admissions process. And we can then intervene. So we can decide maybe, okay, we're admitting this person, but they're at higher risk well, we're going to give this person extra advising. So there's many examples, successful examples of this exact thing coming from just a higher education more broadly. So outside of health professions education specifically, but there are many large universities that are using analytics in this way and they're seeing really great results. Does that reassure you? It's still a little creepy, but they're well, using for me. it. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned... Yeah, like- I... It, there's something scary about it, and but it does reassure me. I mean, just knowing, here's the thing, there's there's a couple things that you're saying, Anshul, that is making me rethink how I think about predictive analytics. The first is that we already have the data. I think even without all of these advanced statistical methodologies, we do have the data and we talk about it. And now we have more concrete, if you will, evidence when you use it this way versus all subjective when faculty come to the table and say, oh, well, this person dropped out. This is the reason why. We already do some of those things already. And this gives us more direction, more evidence, I think more details as to how we can predict when someone's, when a student needs extra help and that sort of thing. I think where it, the other thing that makes me feel good about it is that knowing that the entire world is just moving toward this um, because we have the ability to do it. And, you know, whether you support it or not, it's it's happening. And and I think where my concern is, is I personally feel like it's great for banking. It's great to use for public policy. Um, those, are, those are all great use for predictive analytics. When it comes to someone's fate, that scares me a little bit. And how I've reframed it in terms of the fact that we offer this course as as a required course in our PhD is that we are all going to be, our students too, will be in a culture that uses this. And all of us are positioned, we need to position ourselves to be able to shape how it will be used and to do it ethically, which is what you're speaking to, Anshul. Yeah, absolutely. So a, a couple of things to add. One is that Um, So I remember what I was going to say earlier uh, in response to what you were asking, Peter. I think it's really, especially in the educational context, I think it's really important to think of these analytic tools as one of just a number of tools that you have in your toolbox as an educator. So let's say that we want to provide advising for all our students in the best way possible. That advising is still going to involve face-to-face or now phone or virtual interactions in real time. The analytics are not replacing that, but an example of how the analytics can really help is that they can tell, you know, an advising staff at a large university how to allocate their time. So if there's a hundred students that somebody is responsible for advising, but there are 20 who are at exceptional risk as identified by the model, then the model can flag that for the advisor, and then the advisor can spend extra time with those 20 students. It really adds another tool to your arsenal, but it it in no way is supposed to replace any of the other things within 
that ecosystem that surrounds one of our students or learners in which we all want them to be as supported as possible. So that's point number one. Another thing, uh, Janice, you mentioned just now, which I think is really interesting, is how the applications of analytics can be really different across different sectors. So you mentioned optimizing for profit in the business sector, for instance, that predictive models are used all the time to try and do that, right? So like Amazon is constantly looking at what all you've clicked on and they're using that to make a guess about what ads to show you and make a guess about what you would be likely to buy based on what the ads they showed you. And they optimize their profit that way. They have millions of users coming to their site each day and they can optimize this very easily to improve profits and gradually show better and better ads to their users. But our goal in education is not necessarily to make a model using the same strategy as the business strategy I just described. The metrics that we're optimizing for in education are usually trying to help us get every student over a certain hurdle. We want every student to graduate successfully. We want every student to go on to you know, a good career or to pass the exam that allows them to start their career. So within the predictive models, there are different metrics you can use. It's very similar to a test for a disease. So when we have a COVID test, you, you can have somebody who's being tested who does have COVID, but the test could come out positive or the test could come out negative, right? And so you can get false positives and false negatives, which are incorrect results. And then any listeners who have specifically studied this type of testing would be familiar with the terms of specificity and sensitivity. So even when we're not looking at diseases, we use specificity and sensitivity, the true positive rate, true negative rate, and things like these in our predictive models in education as well. And what you can do is you can make a model that says, okay, I want to have really high sensitivity. I want to catch everybody who has the disease, even if we accidentally classify some people as having the disease who actually don't have it, because I just want to be extra careful, right? So imagine we were talking about Ebola, not COVID. If you're talking about Ebola, you want a really sensitive test. You don't want anybody who really has Ebola to go undetected. But we're okay with a few people testing positive who don't actually have it. That's okay to save our society or community. So you can adjust those metrics to optimize not for profit, but for for everybody passing. Yeah, at a certain threshold level. Maybe as a, a tangible example, Anshul, could you describe some of the measures that you and your colleagues have been looking at in the physician assistant study program and what sort of maybe there's preliminary results that you can share about what are the triggers that are going to give you that positive result? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, one thing we're learning in that uh, research project is that when you don't have, well, this is not something we're learning. This is just a fact of, of nature. But when you don't have that much data, you can't make as good of a model. So in our project, we have a few years worth of data and we're trying to use that to train a model and make predictions on new students so that we can support them as well as possible. But doing that is proving to be very difficult. So we're having to get pretty creative rather than just using some of the -the out-of-the-box predictive techniques. And the trade-off we're having to make now is we're trying to decide, well, how sensitive do we want this predictive model to be? So exactly the same as with the diseases, 
how many people do we want this model to flag? And those people who we flag, are we fine with some of them being people who didn't really need to be flagged in exchange for flagging everyone who really did? Or the flip side of that is, well, we'll only flag a few people, but then a few people who we wish we had flagged, those people will fall through the cracks. So in other words, we'd have a few people walking around on the street who have the disease, but who we failed to realize that they had the disease. But that makes sense. Could you then substitute disease for academic difficulty or what? Yeah. So in this case, disease means failing a test. Yeah. But it it really is very similar in that, you know, when you're looking at a disease test, you'll have a two by two table showing, you know, who tested which way, positive or negative, and whether they actually had the disease or not. And we, we do exactly the same thing in the educational data analysis. We have a two by two table. One dimension is whether someone really passed the test or not. And the other dimension is whether we thought they were going to pass the test or not based on the predictive model. And then we try to make a model that will do as well as possible for next year's student. And without giving away, because I know this is still in progress, what are some of the factors that are the strongest predictors of a student failing a test? That's a really good question. And it's also a good opportunity to highlight a difference between traditional statistics and predictive analytics, if I may. Yeah. So in traditional statistics, we're often asking a question like what Peter asked, that which factors or which variables that we have about uh, our population of interest. So in this case, you could think of that as the columns in your gradebook, right? Which pieces of data in the columns of your gradebook are most important in helping us determine somebody's outcome or are even most impactful in determining somebody's outcome, like their test score at the end of the year? That question is what we can call an associative question of how is X associated with Y. And those are very important questions because let's say that the person who runs our physician assistant program, uh, Lisa Walker, wanted to make changes to the program based on what we find. She would look at the answers to that type of question, perhaps, to say, okay, well, this is the most important predictor of the outcome. Okay, I'm going to put more effort into that to improve it so that we uplift as many students as possible. With the predictive analytics, we are able to get some measures of which factors or which inputs are the most important in determining an outcome, but only in certain types of models, not always in every type of model, because our ultimate goal is is simply to just make predictions that are correct, sometimes ignoring how we got to that prediction. Not always, but sometimes. So you could imagine another application of machine learning is self-driving cars. So the goal of a cell, I don't know too much about this area of machine learning, but the the goal of a self-driving car, I imagine, is just to like stay on the road, stop at signals, not hit people, and like go to the right destination, right? So there's all these sensors sending signals into the central computer of the self-driving car, like all the time, like many, many signals each second, let's say. And then a machine learning algorithm is just going to crunch all of those, and it's going to give a signal to the car. Okay, yes, it's okay to keep going forward, or it's time to turn left, or you need to stop right now because you're about to hit somebody. So in some of those more complicated 
complicated machine learning models, my understanding, again, not being an expert, is that we often don't know exactly which of those inputs are most important relative to each other. But um, but we can judge how well the model is working because we know that the car didn't hit anybody and we know that the car reached its destination. So um, that's, yeah, go ahead. Love to because it seems like if we want to disseminate our findings, which is the job of academia, in the case of this project, Anshul, you'll only be able to disseminate the method. You won't be able to derive any conclusions that other programs can apply because you may not know what that what the secret sauce was. You just know for this data set for these people. So is that true? There's nothing another PA program could learn from this one PA program's analytical model? So yeah, a couple of things. So one is we one thing that I hope to do is to be able to share the method we used for making the model. So I think that is something that can be very generalizable. So we could say to another PA program or really any other educational program that these are the steps we went through to create this particular spaghetti filter that worked really well for us. And we think that it will generalize well to your situation as well. So that is definitely one thing we can do. And that has a whole host of technical steps that are involved that I think can be of use if if someone has done that work for you. So that is something that I hope that we'll be able to contribute. Um, But in our case, since we do have compared to, you know, a self-driving car or a surgery simulator, that's another um, interesting application of, of machine learning where you're generating a lot of data and using it. Compared to those scenarios, we have relatively few uh, data. And so we may be able to say that like these are the 10 most important factors, but I just don't know yet. Do you have, like, if you could summarize what you think factor is to be, are you able to share any of that? Well, I know, I know our listeners are probably like, I want to know. (laughs) So, so yeah, so two things. We can't say that conclusively yet, simply because I, I don't know the answer yet. We're right, right in the middle of the project and we've made some predictive models that do okay, but we want to make a model that does really well. So that's another part of the responsible use, right? If we can't get a model that has the accuracy and specificity and sensitivity that we want it to, then we won't use it to make predictions. So we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. But I mean, so far, all indications point to the factors that are most important are in many cases, ones that we would obviously think of. So like there are some capstone types of assessments that the students in this particular program do. And those so far seem to have the most predictive capability for us. But the thing is that maybe somebody will do really well or really badly on some of those daily quizzes, or maybe they'll do really well or really badly compared to the other students on a final grade for, say, a specific course during their program, then the model could detect that and pick up on it. And then they could flag that student just because that student did a little bit worse on that one course. That's something that's a little harder to just sum up and describe, but it is something that may happen as part of the analysis, nevertheless. It does seem to me, I like your your model of the rows and the columns, but there's sort of infinite number of columns we could include and not all yes. of them quantitative measures. So do you have to limit or can the model absorb any and all types of inputs as it builds its predictive power? Yeah, so the the computer can only include quantitative data. However, for a long time, statisticians have included categorical or 
qualitative data into these quantitative models by doing essentially various tricks. So let's say that we have all the data in the gradebook that I described, and then we have another piece of information, like we have how cheerful a student is or what their favorite ice cream flavor is. And let's say that we think that a student's favorite ice cream flavor is going to help us predict their final outcome. Well, then we can create another column in our gradebook for favorite ice cream flavor. And what the computer will do is it'll, let's say there are four options. So chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, other. The computer will actually create four variables. It's technically three, but let's just say four variables uh, out of those. So it'll plug that into the model. It'll plug four variables and it'll know, it'll change them into a yes, no question. Is this person's favorite ice cream flavor chocolate? Is this person's favorite ice cream flavor vanilla? vanilla, and so forth. And it'll turn it into four columns, each of which answers those questions with either a one for yes or a zero for no. And then it has transformed these qualitative answers into numbers, one and zero. And so it's a little hard to digest without visualizing. So I'm sorry if that didn't make sense to anyone listening, but you can put these things in, but they do need to still be written into the spreadsheet somehow. But you, yeah, you can write them in with words. So I have a question before we wrap up here. I It kind of reminds me of, and tell me if I'm really way off here, but predictive text, texting. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> I don't know why I keep bringing my concerns up during this podcast, but I read a paper from Harvard C's, so School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and they did a study on predictive text systems. And what they found was that the, the use of predictive text actually changes what we were intending to write. So it actually changes our course. So how do you apply that to what we're doing with students? Yeah, that's a really great question. Wow. Yeah, so absolutely. The predictive text is is doing exactly the same thing. It's making the same type of predictions. I think that it, it certainly could happen in our case as well. We could find that, okay, we're making our, these predictive models are predicting certain outcomes. And as a result, we completely change what our goals are as educators. And so it's our, it's then our goal as educators to shape it to their best possible outcome using predictive analytics. I think that's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I mean, you could definitely argue, right? So in the predictive text phenomenon, that you described, somebody actually changes what they were going to write based on the three words displayed at the top of their little keyboard on the phone. Right. Right. So could that be subconsciously happening to us as we see these results and we actually change our plans, but in a way we maybe didn't intend? Sure. I think that could maybe be happening. But at the same time, if we set out with the goal of using the analytics with certain you know missions in mind that will, in the case of the same example we've been using, uplift everybody, then I think it may be worth it, even if there's a little bit of that subconscious drift. But I think that is something that we should investigate as these it's become more ubiquitous. And I think just going back to what I've learned from you today, I mean, essentially that is what we do as advisors of our students is help shape them and guide them um, and essentially be kind of their bumper as they go along, set the bumpers. And, and I think, you know, it's just a matter if we do use predictive analytics again, to be in that position to set them in a way where it, it's ethically, responsible, right, and best for our students. I agree. You know, this, uh, I'm an anthropologist by background. You're a sociologist, Anshul. 
And in some ways, it's very comforting. I'm having the opposite reaction as Janice, and that it shows our common humanity, that we, we like to think we're all individual uh, cre- creations that are the accumulation of our experiences and our backgrounds, and which is, you know, we certainly bring that to the educational setting, but we're also humans and we follow some predictable patterns that they're complex, but now as our tools get more sophisticated, we're able to discern them. And you know, I see a certain kinship in that I'm like the class that went before. People like me have these sets of successes and challenges and I can benefit from their experiences. So it's not that everyone is uh, is starting starting afresh yeah I think I think that completely makes sense I I personally believe that so many things around us or that we do are socially constructed so it makes sense I guess that that same process of social construction would have led to you know as you said these generations of people having a lot of similarities in which we can then find patterns so I can I completely agree let, let me see if I can bring that to three tips. <laughs> about our common humanity. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what some of the takeaways for, for me has have been, as you've suggested, really some powerful tools. So one is that we all generate data of all kinds. And, and even the ice cream example, I think about all the little tidbits you pick up about your learners from the point of admission all the way through. And if we're going to be teaching, say, evidence-based practice as an outcome, why not apply those same principles and use the data we have uh, in, in ways that are constructive? So that to, to me, that's one is not, I think in education, there are all sorts of myths that get that are totally impervious to evidence, but we just pass them down. And why not subject them to some data testing? The, the other part we talked about were the, the ethical elements of using predictive analytics. And, and we know from some of the work with um, facial recognition and the, the online space that, that Janice was bringing up, that these models can reinforce existing biases because they're built by humans and they can exacerbate, but we can also use them, like you said, to identify bias, to call it to our attention because we're subject to those same unconscious processes. We pointed out, so now we're in a position to correct it. So that is the, the, like you said, the ethical use of predictive analytics can help eliminate some of these disparities. And then lastly, I, I loved uh, so many of your, uh, your food metaphors, <laughs> And that if you you take it, this sort of, we have spaghetti, which could be these this spaghetti filter, but we also have penne and we have tortellini and we have ravioli. We have a whole shelf of pasta that we can use to, to help learners achieve their objectives. And this doesn't replace that, the, the interpersonal relations, the advising, the tutoring, the study groups, whatever other uh, pasta items we have on our shelf, they all go together in a, a great big salad. Uh, and this just makes those jobs even easier and more effective. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I'll just add two more thoughts. So one is if, if you're somebody who is thinking about whether or not this might be something that applies to you or your work situation or goals, I would say think about the outcomes you're trying to achieve. And if you already have information somewhere in an Excel spreadsheet that relates to that outcome, because if you do, it's not too many more steps involved 
to plug that spreadsheet into some kind of program and uh, and actually see if it helps you learn more about the outcomes you're interested in. It's it's not really that many steps that are involved, even if it sounds like it might be complicated. And finally, um, in our program, we're just at the start of incorporating this predictive analytics initiative into our work. And so we're always on the lookout for collaborators or anyone who may be wanting to partner with us as we continue to work on this. So please do feel free to get in touch with uh, any of us uh, related to that because we'd love to hear from you. Thank you, Anshal. Always interesting. I find predictive analytics to be fascinating. I hope our listeners um, have enjoyed this episode. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host, Janice Palaganis, and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.